It's a Monday mailbag. We've got your questions about the debut of Anthony Volpe, the impact of the pitch clock on Major League Baseball, and what prospects to watch for in 2024. Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked On MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, editor-in-chief of BravesToday.com, freelance baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen. Every single day, we're proudly part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. And today's episode is made possible by our friends at Ultimate Baseball GM. If you've dreamed of becoming an MLB GM and managing your franchise, this is the game for you. To download the game, visit ultimatebaseballgm.com or look it up in the App Store. Our listeners get a 100% free boost to their franchise with the promo code LOCKEDON in the game. So as we do every single Monday, this episode's all about your questions about minor league baseball prospects and everything in that world. And a couple questions we got, uh, by far the biggest thing was our evaluation of Yankee shortstop Anthony Volpe in his debut for the Yankees. So kind of surprisingly ended up winning the job out of spring training. The common consensus was because Oswald Peraza was up late last year, you had an incumbent option in Isaiah Kiner-Falefa that you would probably end up seeing a situation where Volpe started off in AAA and came up later and or a situation where Peraza would play short and Volpe would play second. Peraza was optioned down. Volpe's the starting shortstop. He goes 0 for 2 on opening day, uh, draws a walk, steals a base when he gets on, and then 2 for 4 on Saturday. Got his first hit, uh, scored a run, stole a second base. So, He's down 0-2 to Alex Cobb of the Giants. Uh, fight, uh, fights back to get it to an even count and then ropes a single to left. Uh, his first run came after his second hit of the game. He, in the ninth inning, actually off a of closer Camilla Duvall, good piece of hitting, uh, starts a ninth inning rally. He steals second. Aaron Judge then brings him in. Uh, again, rally starts. Giancarlo Stanton hits into a double play to end, uh, to, to, to end the inning as a loss. For, uh, for the Yankees. I thought he did fine. There was a defensive miscue he had. I think it was on Saturday. I tried to watch parts of, of, uh, of both of those games. Where he takes a, he takes a hot shot uh, off the bat of Tyro Estrada. Of the Giants. And it looked like it was moving a little funny off the bat. His first step is actually to the right. And then he turns and breaks back left, dives for the ball, knocks it down, but doesn't make the catch, isn't able to make a throw. Uh, and I think, I think the run scored off of it. He said afterwards, you know, that was something where, uh, like, it, that's going to keep him up at night. That's something he definitely has to do. But either way, maybe that was Thursday. Either way, uh, it showed that he's not quite a finished product defensively, but the reactions, the instincts are all good enough for him to. Uh, to you know, to make things happen uh, at short, and I think he's going to be perfectly fine defensively at shortstop. Offensively, you can see the speed is real. Two stolen bases, uh, you know, uh, gets his first two hits again, scores his first run on Saturday. I liked what I saw 
from Anthony Volpe. I do think having him as the starting shortstop is probably the best thing long-term to go ahead and let him start off on opening day. It is a long season. You've got plenty of time if you have to uh, if you have to make adjustments later on and call up a Peraza or somebody else uh, or eventually kick him in the second, you can do that. I think, But I think this was the best way to construct the roster as of now, and I think he looked good enough to keep ro- rolling with him uh, because the promise is definitely there and the future is there. The other prospect that surprisingly debuted over the weekend was Joey Weimer of the Milwaukee Brewers, another one of those thousands of outfield prospects that the Brewers have, initially did not make the roster, right? Luis Urias uh, had a, 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 a hamstring issue, was going to miss quite a bit of time, and so after game one, they called him up to fill the extra roster spot. So just a reminder as to who he is, 2024th rounder out of Cincinnati, he got 127 games between double A and triple A last year, 256, 336, 465. 21 home runs, 57 extra base hits, uh, 55 walks to 147 strikeouts, 31 on 34 on stolen bases. And the book on Joey Weimer, I think he was their 2021 player of the year, maybe. But the book on Joey Weimer is huge arm, fantastic power. One of those classic kind of um, can play center field as a bigger, uh, you know, larger guy, but definitely one of those like ideal right fielding. I mean, probably the best arm in that system, honestly. It is an 80 grade cannon. Uh, so he comes up, he plays center field on Saturday, goes one for two with a double, uh, gets one ball hit to him, routine fly ball, makes the play in center field. And then Jesse Winker pitch hits for him in the eighth. Garrett Mitchell enters the game, or Garrett Mitchell pinch hits for Owen Miller and then moves over to, and then stays in the game, plays center field to finish the game up after Weimer was pinch hit for. Ultimately, the big thing we're looking at is we're going to have to watch the strikeouts and see what he does. Um, He did not strike out. In those two at-bats, like I said, one was a double. I think one was a ball in play. Uh, I want to say it was a grounder. But it's something where in the minors last year, in both AA Biloxi and AAA Nashville, uh, he, you know, where his numbers got better in Nashville. He had a better, thing, uh, better stint in AAA than he had in AA. But he's prone to, uh, to over-swinging, and you can get him with off-speed stuff, right? So... Again, didn't strike out in the small sample size, but something to watch is keeping the strikeout rates lower. He was like 27% strikeout rate in Biloxi. He was like 20% strikeout rate in Nashville. So good debut, like what he did. You just have to make sure that you build on this. And again, the big thing here is you don't uh, let the strikeout rate tick back up. I do think the best alignment for this team is to have... Uh, Garrett Mitchell in center and have Joey Weimer in right with Christian Yelich in left. But then again, that also means what do you do? Like, I'm sorry, and Jesse Winker's DH, which means what do you do when Sal Frelick comes up? And then later, what do you do when Jackson Churio comes up? A lot of work to figure out as far as all these outfielders. Do you keep them all? Can you play them all? If you can't keep them all or play them all, who gets moved? In what deals? What configuration does that look like? In just a minute, 
I want to get to the impact of the pitch clock on opening day and how much shorter the games were. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Ultimate Baseball GM. Uh, Ultimate Pro Baseball GM, it's a ton of fun. It's a great game. I thought that I would be a really good Major League GM. I think I might actually be. When you play the game, like, correction, I might be depending on how you measured success and uh, and being a great GM. So uh, if you've ever thought about running your own franchise, this is the game for you. You can manage every single strategic aspect, whether it's uh, building a farm system, hiring coaches and staff, managing finances of the team, scouting and drafting players and then developing those prospects, navigating free agency, uh, dealing with personalities, all that kind of stuff. That's where you have tons of fun in Pro Baseball GM. It's a very realistic and challenging, but like deep and thorough world that you're in. Completely free. You can play it offline. You can play it on the go. So it's when you want to. You don't have to have an internet connection. You don't, you're not tied to any sort of real life time. Uh, you can play whenever you want to. You can actually make your own leagues with your friends. We have a league with the other Locked on MLB hosts. As predicted, I have the best farm system. Uh, our, the owner in the team who hosts Locked on uh, Astros, one of the guys, uh, Brett, has been fired like twice already. Uh, and Jeff from Locked on Guardians is like the best at this game by far. So uh, maybe listen to him when he talks about his draft stuff. Maybe pay attention to him because he drafts really well. But Locked on MLB Prospects listeners get a 100% free boost to their franchise when you use the promo code LOCKEDON in the game store. So make sure to check it out. To download the game, probaseballgm.com. If you're on YouTube, you can scan the code on the screen or look it up in the app store. That's probaseballgm.com for the ultimate baseball GM app. Start your dynasty today. So looking at the weekend and what happened with the pitch clock, I think it's very, very easy to say that the pitch clock is a great thing for baseball. And granted, I've been beating this drum for a while because I saw this in the minor leagues last year. I watched a lot of games in MILB.TV, uh, and they had a pitch clock, and they went really quickly. We'll have more about MILB-TV in the third segment. But the average game time on opening day, uh, two hours and 45 minutes. Th- uh, last year, it was three hours and 11 minutes, so you shaved 26 minutes off of opening day. Uh, 10 of the 15 games were less than three hours, which was, to me, absolutely fantastic. I loved that. You did see 14 pitch clock violations. It came out to right around one per game. Uh, Eight were on pitchers, five were on hitters. One was on a catcher, which I don't remember. I'm sure we had some of those in spring training. I just don't quite remember those. But what stood out to me, so I watched the day game between Atlanta and Washington because I am a Braves fan. And then I watched the night game between the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks because I wanted to see Corbin Carroll and what he did. The Dodgers-Diamondbacks game, to me, is the perfect example of why the pitch clock is a good thing. This game, it was an 8-2 Dodgers victory. So this game had 16 hits, 10 runs scored, 20 strikeouts, and they used 9 pitchers including four times they made the pitching change in the middle of the inning, which meant that that was an extra 90-second break in there for the change versus making it during the commercial break. Despite all of that stuff, that Dodgers-Diamondbacks game, two hours and 35 minutes. Uh, Dave Roberts said after the game 
that if they played that without a pitch clock, that's probably a three and a half hour game. And that's getting awful close up to like round of golf territory. How long it takes to go play a round of golf. And as anybody who is a golfer will tell you, one of the hardest parts about playing golf, especially when you have a family, is finding the time to go play golf. And so if this game, according to Dave Roberts, who, you know, did this last year, said that would have taken three and a half hours last year, and they played it in 235, that tells you that the pitch clock is absolutely a good thing. I have a friend, a close friend, who was getting more into Major League Baseball this year than he ever has before. And he sat down to watch an entire game the other day. And he sent me a text about the 6th or 7th inning, and he said, I love the pitch clock. This is amazing. Because the game just moves so quickly. The pace is really good. Now, there are questions about sometimes do you see big innings and things like that happen because the pitchers or the hitters don't quite have a chance to take a breath and reset and stuff like that. I mean, there is some legitimate concern about uh, what this does as far as scoring and things like that. But all in all, a game with a pitch clock is the same game that you were used to seeing. That it's still 27 outs per team. It is still nine innings. It is still three outs per inning. All of that same stuff. But the extra time that you've gotten rid of was all wasted time. And the biggest thing to me is watching the hitters. The hitters don't get out of the box, readjust their batting gloves twice, tap off both their shoes, do some sort of routine, and then get back in the box. They don't have time for that. They've got... If the hand, if the ball, if there's no, if there's nobody on base, they got to be back in the box ready to hit within like seven seconds. And so that's the biggest change to me. The game just flows so much better. Uh, big fan of watching games with the pitch clock. Uh, Bert on Twitter actually sent us two questions. The first one, and this was his second question, but I structured him differently for the show. Uh, he asked about, he said he's a Braves fan. So what defensive tools does Von Grissom need to work on? at shortstop. And this is something, famously, I talked about this for an entire segment on the show, and then right afterwards was proven wrong. It was Braden Shoemake, prospect Braden Shoemake, versus former number one prospect uh, Von Grissom for the Braves starting shortstop job this year. They went with neither one of them. Uh, ex- you know, Gave the job to veteran Orlando Arcia, formerly of the Brewers, and then extended him like Atlanta does. Gave him a couple years and a couple million dollars on a deal with probably 1% going back to the Braves Foundation like they seem to do with everybody. Uh, The thing for Von Grissom is defensively, there's two kinds of things that he has to work on as far as uh, how to improve the defense. And we saw it. He started at shortstop for AAA Gwinnett on opening day for them on Friday. uh, Had a fielding error. And he's going to play four of the six games a week at short and two of the six games a week at second while Braden Shoemake plays four games at second Two games at short. They want Shoemake to learn second. They were going to call him up last year to help fill in for Ozzie Albies, but he had a knee injury, so they called Grissom up instead. Uh, the first thing for Von Grissom is the range, right? Uh, it's it's both kind of the top end speed isn't amazing. Okay, so 59th percentile in his time in the majors last year, 27.7 feet per second. Uh, so it's above average speed. But it's not amazing, and when you watch, very much of that top-end speed is the long strides, and when he gets up to full speed versus the initial beginning, the acceleration. The acceleration for Von Grissom isn't necessarily there. And when you watch him at short, 
it kind of feels like he doesn't have that quick twitch reaction that a lot of good defensive shortstops have. Not saying he can't get there. I do believe in Von, in, uh, in in Ron Washington. I do believe in uh, positioning. I do believe his baseball instincts are good, but he just doesn't have that initial quick twitch at the very beginning that you're looking for. The arm is good enough for third, third or short, but if he does anywhere, it's going to end up being the outfield because, again, that top-end speed, the longer strides, and the fact Atlanta has Austin Riley signed for you know a decade or whatever. The second thing for, uh, for Von Grissom is the hands. It feels like the speed of the transfer and the consistency of making the transfer from the glove to the throwing arm isn't always there. So I feel like oftentimes I watch him double clutch. I watch him go to grab it and have to go again to grab it to get it out to make the throw. And then sometimes when he's making the transfer from the glove to the hand, uh, he'll miss the hand or it just doesn't quite land. So it's some of that consistency on the movements. That's a lot of the stuff that, uh, that Ron Washington can help with as far as the consistency of the hands, making the transfer, or getting the glove in the right position for the grounder and not having to use the second hand to help corral it in because your glove wasn't quite placed right. So it's, just, it's a mechanics thing. It's a repetition thing. I still think Von Grissom can be the shortstop. But defensively, last year playing second base, he didn't grade out amazingly. He got 347 games or 347 innings in the bigs at second base. Negative three defensive runs saved. Uh, negative 1.8 ultimate zone rating. Uh, negative five outs above average. So ending up in a negative 0.3 defensive war. I understand war. I can't say that I'm an expert in... DRS or UZR or OAA. Definitely going to read up on those this week just because I feel like that's something I need to be bringing to this podcast. But uh, know that he's graded out at second base, which some of those grades, those grading systems have a built-in adjustment for defensive position. So the standard to be good is different for second than for short. He graded the neg- you know, negative at second. So that's why there's questions about his defense at short. Again, it's the it's the first initial reaction and then just ultimately the ceiling on the range. And then it's the hands and being more consistent with the hands is what he has to work on uh, at, at shortstop. In just a minute, I've got a question about why MLB would do a new deal with Bally Sports since they're in the middle of the bankruptcy. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Built Bar. This is the absolute best protein bar on the market. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy Built Bars. I go to a lot of baseball games, sit in the press box a lot. The food, there's usually not even food offered, or if there is, maybe it's a concessions coupon. And so I take Built Bars with me everywhere I go. Um, I think they, they taste fantastic. Lots of amazing flavors. We just finished the Built March Madness uh, bracket. Don't quite know who won yet. I haven't seen that, but obviously we were giving out free boxes of Built to listeners. We were giving out a 12-month subscription to Built to one lucky winner, and I want to see who won. My favorite's the churro, but what I love about Built Bars is uh, 17 grams of protein, but they're low in calories, low in sugar, so they're good. They they, they taste good. The 100% real chocolate helps with that. They're good for you, but they're not full of empty calories and things like that that negatively impact your waistline. So go to Built.com. Check out all of the flavors there. You can get some at your local Walmart and Sam's. Walmart, they're in the pharmacy section. 
or again, you can buy them at Built.com. Colin on Twitter had a question about why Major League Baseball would enter a new deal with Valley. They announced this on the 31st uh, about making Bally the first ever national media rights holder and then the exclusive fantasy and gaming partner of minor league baseball. Like, why would you do this when you're already having to deal with the uncertainty behind a bankruptcy for Bally? And so I think the answer to this, okay, so let's back up. What the deal is going to give you is Bally has additional rights outside of what they already had as far as the RSNs and the online product to show baseball games. They'll have the ability, should they choose, to uh, show more uh, minor league, like to show minor league games both in their app as well as over the air. I don't expect a ton of them to be on the, on the networks. I expect most of this to be geared towards the Bally Live app. They're trying to, this is a, a sign-up thing where you can sign up monthly to, uh, for the streaming app to watch in-market major league games and all of these minor league games without having to have a cable subscription because there's so many people that deal with this for the blackouts. I And then there's other links to uh, gaming options, fantasy sports, all of that inside the app. I think the big thing here, the big reason why MLB would do this is ultimately Major League Baseball wants all of these rights under their own umbrella so they can get rid of the blackouts. But in the meantime, this RSN system, this is how the teams pay for the players on the roster. This is an important revenue stream for these teams, and these agreements are currently in place. So what I'm guessing is the unspoken part of this is either... Major League Baseball has provisions in there where they're able to get certain rights so they can avoid, so they can in the future avoid blackouts, or they're getting equity in these networks in case of uh, a potential sale or some other reorganization during bankruptcy, where they have the ability to make sure that they have distribution secured for this season. You're in the middle of this season you need to make sure you can still show games. And obviously, while baseball could figure it out, they could find a way to take off the regional restrictions on MLB.tv or work out something in season were Bally to miss their payments to teams and to start having issues. It's easier to make sure that Bally's product, as of now, currently exists and is able to exist for this season. So you give them additional inventory, something that is was not a revenue driver for Major League Baseball. Uh, people like me who paid for MILB.TV were very much in the minority. They did not make a ton of money off of the minor league rights. But if they can sell or if they can give these rights to Bally and people are more willing to sign up for the Bally Live app because not only can they watch their in-market team, but they can also check out their team's minor league affiliates and other games for free, that overall helps mitigate, one, the loss of streaming subscriptions, and then two, helps grow signups to that, to that product. So it's a long-term play for baseball here. They're wanting to make sure that the Bally structure that's currently there 
uh, exists for this season, and then they have a foothold and a relationship to step in and take more up to and including taking the RSNs from Bally were bankruptcy not to be kind to, to uh, Bally and to Diamond Sports. The other question from Bert on Twitter was about now that he has MILB.TV or he has it as part of his MLB.TV package, what 2024 prospects should he be looking for? I've got three. Um, I've got three that I want to just real quick mention. Uh, first one, outfielder Pete Crow Armstrong of the Cubs. There is a chance you see Pete Crow Armstrong later this year in the bigs, especially considering what happens with Cody Bellinger in center field for the Cubs. But he didn't appear above high A last year. 2020 first round pick out of high school by the Mets, was traded in the Javi Baez deal, got 101 games between A and high A last year, 312, 376, 520, 16 home runs, 46 extra base hits, 36 walks to 102 strikeouts, and 32 of 43 on stolen bases. He's going to start off the year at AA Tennessee. I have a scouting trip planned for week two to go see him versus Montgomery. And uh, there's the things here is he has fantastic in-zone contact ability at the plate. There's questions about the power ceiling, you know, slugging a 520 in the low minors, but there's still questions about the overall uh, strength in the swing and what the raw power can translate into. But what you need to know about Pete Crow Armstrong is he is the best defensive player in the minors. Uh, He is an 80-grade defender in center. You very rarely see that. The speed is plus. The arm is somewhere between above average and plus. And it is an absolute delight to watch Pete Crow Armstrong play center field. So, Bert, the first player to watch for, go turn on Double A Tennessee Smokies games to watch Pete Crow Armstrong. The second guy, and my twins' friends tell me he might debut earlier than 2024, but Brooks Lee of the Minnesota Twins, 2022 first rounder out of Cal Poly, got 31 games last year between rookie ball, high A, and double A. They, ju- they jumped him straight from rookie ball to high A, Uh, for 25 games, and he finished up with two games in AA Wichita. 308, 388, 451. Four home runs, 10 extra base hits, 16 walks to 20 strikeouts, 0 for 2 on stolen bases. Uh, Offensively, switch hitter. I think his left-handed swing is much better than his right-handed swing. His left-handed swing is very smooth, very even, very balanced. His right-hand swing, it's kind of pull-heavy. So it feels like that's where he's trying to generate the power, but lefty, he's content to just spray them all over the yard. But either way, he's going to be a guy who's going to hit for high average. Uh, the power is going to be probably average or so. He's got really good pitch discernment. So the swing decisions are good for the most part. And it's a make the best and barrel up what you can. Um, the question will be defensively. Obviously, where is he going to play? Carlos Correa is at short. So I think... Just based on what I watch of him, plus Correa being at short, you're looking at third baseman Brooks Lee. There's questions about the overall range, similar to Von Grissom. And then it doesn't feel like he has the fluidity in the actions, the kind of quick twitch actions to be a third baseman. I'm sorry, to be a shortstop, but he can play third base. So look for Brooks Lee. I'm assuming he'll start off at double-A Wichita. And again, he'll be a candidate to quickly, if he's hitting well, to bump up to AAA is what our listeners who are Twins fans and the Locked Enemy Prospects Discord tell me. So watch for that. The third guy is Colson Montgomery of the White Sox. 2021 first rounder out of high school, 96 games between A ball, high A, and double A. 
274, 381, 429, 11 home runs, 30 extra base hits, 54 walks, 283 strikeouts, and 1 for 2 on stolen bases. Offensively, very good strike zone discipline, has projectable power. Right now, kind of like left centers the alley where he's sending stuff. Uh, I think he can, I, he has a little more, when he tries to pull it, a little more juice, but he's right now, he's just kind of aiming for that left center alley, get it out there and just run for days. The overall speed's only necessarily average. He only got two triples and all of those extra base hits last year, but just a guy that uh, that absolutely uh, understands the idea of not trying to do too much at the plate, right? Uh, now, defensively, the arm is above average. Again, the speed's only necessarily average, but because he has long strides and because he has really good baseball instincts, the range ends up being good. I think the big thing that helps is, one, having having the, the, the good instincts to get that good first step, but then the arm, the strength is above average, but I've been very impressed with Colson Montgomery's ability to make an off-platform throw, where his feet haven't quite set, but he's got the ball, he's got to get it out, and he gets it out accurate enough for a good play at first to get the out. That's been the impressive thing for me for Colson Montgomery, and that's not something we necessarily could say Going into last year, a lot of work in his age 20 season last year to get that defense looking better. And so it projects now that he should be able to stick at shortstop versus having to move to third. And Tim Anderson, if I remember right, has a club option for next year that's already been picked up, and that's the end of his deal. So it very much feels like this is a situation where you could see Colson Montgomery threatening for the job to open 2024, uh, if not maybe playing third base for a while and then kicking over or playing short and then kicking Tim Anderson into second, which has been a problem for the White Sox for a while. Final question real quick. Tyler McDuffie uh, sent us an email, prospects at gmail.com if you have one, asking about uh, which former top prospect had the better chance of working out, Joe Adele or Mickey Moniak, both with the Angels Adele was drafted by them. Moniak was uh, was traded over to them from Philadelphia. To me, I like Adele's uh, tools. Moniak feels like someone who is new to the organization and is going to have a longer leash than Adele. So if Joe Adele figures it out, I think it'll be somewhere else. And I don't think you're going to get anything of value for either one of these guys. It'll be something where... They'll get DFA'd and you won't have any more options. So they're just, they're going to go to waivers and somebody might claim them. Or it might be a swap for another change of scenery guy. But both of them just feel like they're not necessarily uh, desirable in trades. Uh, what was it? Adele. I want to say Adele had a strikeout rate in like close to 40% in the bigs. And he looked a little shaky in right field the first month he was out there. Now, after that, he stabilized and he got his batting average up to a respectable, like to, to an okay 224. But uh, 224, 264, 373 is not going to cut it when the Angels are trying to compete. And then Mickey Moniak has, uh, has not played any games in the bigs for the Angels. His batting average in 18 games last year with Philadelphia was 130. I'm sorry, uh, has only played 19 games in the bigs for the Angels. He batted 200, 226, 417. And he was, he was even lower than that in Philadelphia, batting 130. So definitely something where he profiles at best. Moniak does as a fourth outfielder. 
but it feels like he's going to have a longer leash than Joe Adele did simply because Adele's with the team that drafted him and has given him all the tools and the, uh, all the opportunities in the world. Moniac is, uh, is on a new organization where theoretically they, can, they think they can make some changes and fix some of the issues they've seen in the past. Fantastic week this week. Reminder, if you have questions for the show, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. You can email us, LockedOnMLBProspects at gmail.com or drop your questions in the Locked on MLB Prospects Discord. Links in the episode description. Links in the show notes. Until tomorrow's show, remember, it's always a good time to pay a minor leaguer.